2: Your daughter's what? My daughter, my son, my son-in-law, and my partner's
1: That was Phil Dasso, who 20 years ago showed up at his son's workplace with his wife and found four bodies, victims of a mass execution, inside an office building in Bartow. Justice has taken its time in that case, and the victims' families are still waiting for a final resolution. That harrowing story is coming up later on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll give you an update on the four shooting deaths that devastated the Seminole Heights neighborhood in Tampa. Police have made an arrest in that case. Later, I'll discuss the execution-style quadruple murder in Bartow that took place 20 years ago yesterday. The man convicted of those murders, Nelson Serrano, was convicted almost nine years later earlier this year had his death sentence thrown out. This state is trying again. The defendant's capture was made possible only by the persistence and ingenuity of a now-retired law enforcement investigator who got Serrano deported from his homeland of Ecuador and got him in front of a Florida judge. That investigator, Tommy Ray, will be my special guest along with Lakeland-Ledger legal reporter Susie Shattelcotti. You don't want to miss that. Coming up, the grisly story of an Orlando-area man accused of killing his mother with an axe and attacking his sister with a knife.
3: This is a very sad incident. It's an incident of domestic violence. Um, it's a son who turned on a mom and also stabbed his sister. Don't know what precipitated this.
1: That was Orange County Sheriff's Spokeswoman Jane Wattrell talking to the media Tuesday about the murder that took place the night before in East Orlando. 27-year-old Adam Farney was charged Tuesday with first-degree murder and attempted first-degree murder. Following allegations, he had bludgeoned his mother with an axe and stabbed his sister with a knife.
3: Last night uh, we received a very urgent 911 call uh, from the sister at a neighbor's house. What happened was the sister of this family was in her bedroom and she heard some sort of commotion in the backyard patio. When she went out to explore, she found her brother um, with a very sharp weapon standing over the mom who had significant injuries and she later died. The sister uh, confronted the sibling, her brother, and he began to stab her and she managed to injure him and run to a neighbor's house and call us, call 911.
1: The Orlando Sentinel reported that Farney's 52-year-old mother, Lori, died at the scene. Farney's 23-year-old sister, Autumn, saw her brother standing over her mother clutching the bloody axe. She said something to Farney, who then came after her with a knife and stabbed her in the collarbone, according to the sheriff's office. Deputies said Farney tried to strangle his sister, but she fought him off. An arrest report stated that the hell-bent suspect kept attacking Autumn and eventually dragged her toward the pool before they fell through the screened gate. Deputies said Farney held his sister's head underwater, but Autumn, who had fought to gain control of the knife, started swinging it around in an effort to cut Farney and defend herself. She escaped his grasp and ran to a neighbor's house on Rensselaer Road to call 911. Farney barricaded himself in the house and Swat was called to the scene. After several hours, Farney surrendered peacefully. Before he was taken to jail, he was hospitalized.
3: He did not give us any explanation as to what caused this, what precipitated this. We can tell you that the suspect has no criminal record except he was Baker-acted at one point.
1: Florida's Baker Act allows people to be involuntarily detained and be administered emergency care for mental health issues if those patients are a threat to themselves or others. Varney remains held without bail at the Orange County Jail. Coming up, an update on the Seminole Heights serial murder case.
0: Today is a good day. Today good guys
1: won. That was Tampa Mayor Bob Buckhorn, who announced to the media that the search for the man who fatally shot five people across 36 days in the Seminole Heights neighborhood has been arrested. The investigation, which involved local, state, and federal police agencies, lasted one month, one week, and four days. The man arrested was 24-year-old Howell Donaldson III, who was charged with five counts of first-degree murder. The Tampa Bay Times described the search as one of the most intense dragnets in the city's history. It ended Tuesday with a tip given to a Tampa police officer who was finishing up some paperwork inside a McDonald's in Ybor City. Donaldson, known by his friends as Trey, worked at that McDonald's. He had handed a manager his semi-automatic handgun. He told the manager to hold on to it for him while he ran an errand. Another employee decided to report it to the police and only had to walk over to the dining area to do so. Backup was called and Donaldson was arrested after he returned to the restaurant. One lead after another was followed and Donaldson was charged. The suspect is a former walk-on with the 2011-2012 St. John's University Red Storm basketball team. Several news media in Tampa interviewed Donaldson's parents after his arrest. His father, Howell Jr., was in disbelief.
0: My dad is 97 and he's a good dad. He raised me to be a good man. I'm proud of him. I'm glad the job that he's
3: done.
1: It. Yeah. And I like think I good job with my boy. Howell's wife, Rosita, summed up in three words her feelings after finding out her son was arrested in connection to a murder case that has made national news.
3: Heartbroken, devastation, disbelief.
1: During the Mayor's press conference last week, he stood alongside Governor Rick Scott. Buckhorn credited the collaboration from all agencies who helped with the investigation, from the Tampa Bay Police Department to the FBI.
0: Uh, we would not be here today having apprehended this individual had it not been for the team effort uh, that's been taking place for the last 51 days. Uh, the men and women of law enforcement are tired they've been at this 24 hours a day they've sacrificed their families in order to help the families and victims of this Um, i could not be more complimentary of them this for them was personal
1: police have announced that the mcdonald's employee who turned in the weapon to the police officer will receive a reward of $110,000. coming up the shocking story of the quadruple murder carried out by Nelson Serrano, who for a while avoided arrest while hiding out in Quito, Ecuador. December 3rd had always been a celebratory date for Frank Dasso and his wife, Maria. On that date in the mid-1980s, the couple met for the first time. Then it became the birth date of their twin daughters. For the next eight years, December 3rd would always consist of birthday cakes, gift-giving, smiles, and kisses. Then came December 3rd, 1997. At 5.30pm that day, Frank was supposed to be home so that he and his family could celebrate his twin's birthday. By 545 Maria began to worry. She had called the office. No one answered. She called her mother-in-law, Nicoletta Dasso. She and her husband, Phil, also had a daughter, Diane Patiso. She was a young prosecutor, and she was married to George Patiso. Diane was supposed to go to Erie Manufacturing to meet her husband and her brother, but Nicoletta and Phil had not heard from Diane or Frank. By six o'clock, They got worried. Phil and Nicoletta drove 20 minutes from their home to the Erie building, which contained a factory and some administrative offices located on Centennial Boulevard in Bartow. The company manufactured hanger racks for warehouses and sold their products to major clothing retailers. Phil, an Italian immigrant, co-owned the company with his friend, George Gonzalez. Phil's son and son-in-law were in the family business. When Phil and Nicoletta pulled into the parking lot around 6.20 p.m., they noticed some of the lights were on. Nicoletta had an uneasy feeling. If the lights were on, why didn't anyone answer the phone when Maria called? Nicoletta entered the hallway that led to the factory. That part of the building was dark she tripped over something. It was the lifeless body of her daughter, Diane. Nicoletta let out a wail. She wandered over to the office area. There, she found the bodies of her son, Frank, her son-in-law, George, and her husband's business partner, Mr. Gonzalez. Nicoletta's subsequent screams were heard by Phil, who stormed into the building, saw the gore himself, and called nine one one.
2: What's the problem? I got it. the What's going on? 15, 20, drive on the
1: Phil struggled to form coherent sentences while the nine one one operator struggled to understand him.
2: What's going on? Oh, my, oh my God! Sir! Sure. God, I know what happened! Oh. Sir, sure, calm down. He did it to let me know what happened. What's going on? I don't know. My daughter my son must come home. Uh, your son? Stop! Stop!
1: Eventually, while Nicoletta continued screaming in the other room, Phil was able to gather himself just enough to tell the operator what he and his wife had just discovered.
2: Okay, I, I still can't understand you, sir. You're, you're, you're too upset. Your daughter's what? My daughter, my son, my son in law, and my partner's all dead! Please come down at
1: 1520 Centennial Drive! From the start, the victim's loved ones knew who was responsible for the murders. It was Nelson Serrano, the former business partner of Phil Dasso and George Gonzalez, who was fired from the company partly for siphoning off funds and emptying them into a secret bank account without his partner's knowledge. The end of the workday on December 3rd was like any other day at the office. Gonzalez met with Frank and George in Frank's office, which used to be Serrano's office. They gathered there to talk about whatever business they needed to discuss and prepare for what was awaiting them on the next business day. The doors around the front portion of the building were unlocked. Frank and George were expecting Diane to show up any minute to take them to Frank's house to attend the birthday party. It was then that Frank, George, and Mr. Gonzalez received an unannounced, unwelcome visitor, Nelson Serrano, who was wielding a gun. The lead investigator in the case, Tommy Ray, of the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, described to me how Serrano killed his victims.
0: Definitely, he came in armed. He confronted the, you know, three victims in the office, the three male victims, you know, Frank, George, and George. Uh, had him at gunpoint, had him kneel down, and as they were, you know, putting them on the ground, he shot George Pisa in the back of the head, and he shot George Gonzalez. And then Frank was attempting to get up, and he shot Frank initially, you know, through his arm and wrist and his watch band. And then, you know, before he could get up, came up and shot him in the back of the head. Then he continued going back, shooting several times uh, in the back of the head with a twenty two revolver.
1: It gets worse. Serrano kept a 32 caliber handgun hidden inside the office. He walked over to the area of the building where he kept it so he could fetch it and take it with him, for whatever reason. It was then that his fourth victim entered the building.
0: And we later found out from interviews that Nelson Serrano would leave a gun hidden in the ceiling tile area. There was a, uh, you know, concrete just above the, the ceiling tile, and he would always put a gun there. So we feel that he was there to retrieve the gun that no one had checked, and you know he knew that he needed to probably take the gun from the scene, and that was the 32. We feel that Diane came in not knowing, of course, any of this. Nelson hears her, grabs a 32, not the 22 that he'd shot the three uh, other victims with, but the 32, chases her down the hall. She's trying to get back out to the front door to escape, grabs her by the hair of the head, shot her in the you know, right cheek of the 32, and it exited and went inside uh, George Gonzalez's office and left her lying there. And he goes back and retrieves his 22 pistol. And Diane's not dead at that point. And he kind of props her up to a sitting position from the where she was at, and then he shoots her in the back of the head with a 22. So Diane was shot with both a 22 and a 32.
1: Ray is now retired. For years, he was consumed with this murder case. He and I spoke about it at great length. With the exception of one or two minute details, his memories were crystal clear. When he arrived at the crime scene, he noticed the displaced ceiling tile. He also noticed a chair that looked out of place, like it had been moved and used as a step stool. The chair was dusted for prints, and a shoe impression was obtained. Ray knew right away the killer knew his way around the office.
0: You know, all the victims, you know, were shot, execution style, in the back of the head, and uh, knowing that and seeing the way that it all, uh, you know, took place, you know, we just felt that someone really had to know the layout of the business because, you know, it's a fairly large-sized business, you know, the offices as well as the warehouse in the back. So, you know, it's uh, a lot of square footage in there.
1: Killers of that type want detectives to suspect the victims died during a burglary. So the assassin tried to manipulate the scene.
0: There was paper that was strewn about on the floor, and that's, you know, uh, just trying to throw us off. But we also noticed that one of the uh, drawers was open to one of the desks in uh, Frank D'Also's office, and inside was a... uh, money bag of you know miscellaneous uh, probably two or three hundred bucks if, if i recall correctly untouched as well as you know nothing uh, initially appeared to be taken you know, from the victims
1: ray was convinced the killer knew every nook and cranny of the building he had a name nelson serrano he also knew serrano had a motive Ray was told by Phil Dasso and others about Serrano's firing. Phil and Mr. Gonzalez had started Erie Manufacturing together in New York, and it was there that they had encountered Serrano, who was a salesman. They were so impressed by Serrano's abilities, they invited him to Polk County, Florida, where they were going to relocate and expand the business. Everything was gangbusters at first until Phil and his partner discovered Serrano had stolen close to $250,000. They also discovered that Serrano's son, Francisco, was involved in the scheme. Francisco, who also was employed by Erie, was fired too. Serrano was most resentful of Gonzalez, who was the one who actually locked Serrano out of his own office. An irate Serrano showed up one day in the summer of 1997 and started kicking the office door. Gonzalez called 911 on his former colleague. Lawsuits were filed that year. Serrano started a new company, but it was flatlining while his old company was still enjoying an upward trajectory. Serrano had murder on his mind. He was taking trips to Atlanta presumably for business. Serrano was trying to figure out how to dupe investigators. If he was going to commit murder, he needed them to think he was hundreds of miles away when the trigger was pulled. The reporter who has spent the most time covering this case is Susie Shattelcotti of the Lakeland Ledger. Serrano, she told me, spent months planning to assassinate Gonzalez. He even carried out a practice run in late October. Only it wasn't intended to be that.
2: Yes, that's the, the evidence that they showed at the trial, was that he had planned this for several months in advance and even had done a dry run in October. It wasn't intended to be a dry run, but he had flown to Charlotte made similar arrangements using aliases to fly back to florida for the day and intended to go to erie and commit the murders then but it was halloween and everybody had left early it was also pouring down rain and by the time nelson got to erie there wasn't anybody there and he didn't have time to wait around or to do anything else he had to get to his next plane so that turned out to be a failed venture
1: Serrano was trying to lay out the perfect crime. He thought he had done it. On December 2nd, he drove to Orlando International Airport and parked his vehicle on the top deck of the parking area. Then he flew to Atlanta and checked into La Quinta Inns and Suites. Shortly after 12pm, on December 3rd, a video camera in the hotel lobby catches an image of Serrano he catches a flight from Atlanta to Orlando, where a rental car was waiting for him. Ray later learned the car was reserved and parked next to Serrano's personal vehicle by Serrano's nephew. Serrano drives the car to the Erie Plant. He commits the murders, then heads to Tampa, perhaps stopping briefly at his son's house in Plant City. When he gets to Tampa, he boards a plane back to Atlanta and returns to his hotel. He does all of this within a 10-hour time frame. When the investigation started, Serrano actually did have detectives fooled, somewhat. Police looked at the video, and they reached the very conclusion Serrano wanted. They thought, well, he's in Atlanta. There's no way he could have pulled the trigger. But maybe he paid someone to do it. Ray, however, hadn't looked at the video yet. When he did, he noticed something very interesting.
0: Yeah, when he was uh, interviewed initially with Barco Police Department, he told them that uh, he had gone out and met with some clients there in Atlanta that morning, but he had such a migraine headache that he came back uh, to the hotel, went in the room, and, and never left. So when I'm looking at the video, I see that he's wearing the same like jacket and turtleneck, uh, you know, all dress clothes there at 12-something. And then he has it when he comes back in at 10:19. 19 So it was apparent that, you know, he wasn't, you know, suffering from migraine lying in bed, you know. But at least, uh, I felt, you know, changed clothes.
1: Nobody sleeps off a migraine in a turtleneck blazer and dress pants. Also, that 10-hour timeline was something that immediately jumped out at Ray. He believed Serrano had ample time to commit the slangs. There was also the issue of Serrano's method of payment that day.
0: He always used his credit card for everything. And mainly, I guess, uh, you know, for write-offs, business write-offs, whenever he returned to the business, uh, the ones that he worked at. And this particular day, no charges, no phone calls, you know, during this nine hours and 57-minute gap. And so that was another thing that you know, we felt was just out of character for him completely.
1: On December 3rd, Serrano was cash-happy and kept his plastic in his billfold. There was one other piece of evidence. The mileage used on that rental car on that day was close to matching the distance from the Orlando Airport to Bartow through Plant City to Tampa. It was only off by eight miles. Serrano's house was near Lakeland. Taking that into account, the distance and the mileage count were a virtual match. Little by little, Ray was building a case, but it was a plod, not a sprint. Months went by, then years. The victims' families were getting restless, and they were losing confidence in Ray and his colleagues. The Patiso family wanted to bring in a private investigator, a retired detective from New York who had worked a lot of murder cases, including some that were high-profile. Ray wasn't offended. He welcomed the help. That surprised the Petisos as well as the private investigator. Ray met with the investigator and told him everything he and the FDLE were doing to the last detail, including airing a segment on America's Most Wanted and tapping Serrano's phone to see who he would call after the episode aired. The private investigator knew he could not expand on what Ray and his fellow investigators were doing.
0: He said, oh, "Okay, he said, you know, thank you very much." So he shook my hand. DASO had given him a retainer. He walks out. He hands a retainer to Mr. Adasso, and he says, uh, you, know, you, "You leave them alone, and they'll solve that case." Everybody was getting frustrated. The was getting frustrated. I mean, they'll call like every day. You know, like it's been two years. My God, has, you know, has he gotten away with this? So there was a lot of stress, you know, a lot of pressure. You know, we were bound and determined to check every possible angle.
1: In 2000, nearly three years after the slayings, Ray was at a dead end. Phil Dasso called him and begged him to come over and talk to his wife, Nicoletta, who was on the brink of a nervous breakdown. She was wearing black every day. She was beside herself with grief. And the only thing that could make her feel better was raising her hopes that Serrano would wind up behind bars. Ray agreed to meet with the couple. He thought it would be good for him, too. He needed a new lead, and he got one. Up to that point, Ray had no way of knowing that Serrano was on the flight from Atlanta to Orlando. He asked Frank and Nicoletta whether they knew any sort of aliases Serrano could have used. Frank reminded Ray that Serrano had a son from a previous marriage, Juan Carlos. Also, one of his wives had the maiden name of Agasio. It was a bingo moment. The plane's manifest contained the name Juan Agasio. That person paid for a round-trip ticket but he only used half of it. Then Ray checked the Tampa Flights Manifest. Someone named John White did the same thing, purchased a round-trip ticket, but only used it as a one-way ticket. The White name was taken from an Atlanta business that Serrano knew, and John was the English version of Juan. It was another brick in the foundation. Ray had new momentum. But Ray still needed physical evidence that Serrano was in Orlando on December 3rd, 1997. He knew cars entering and exiting parking garages required tickets, so Ray hoped to obtain the very ticket Serrano used for his rental car in Orlando. The odds of him finding it seemed insurmountable, especially considering that airport employees had told Ray the tickets were nowhere to be found, they were likely destroyed. Three times Ray assigned someone to go find the stash of tickets, and each time that endeavor came up empty. Ray decided to try one more time, only he didn't pawn it off to someone else. Lo and behold, a storage room contained boxes upon boxes of parking tickets that were issued in late 1997. Ray slipped on a pair of surgical gloves and went to work, leafing through thousands of tickets. He found it. He called Assistant State Attorney John Aguero and told him his discovery. The prosecutor said to him it still wasn't enough to indict. Ray was deflated, but he thought maybe there was still a fingerprint he could pull from the ticket, so he sent it to a lab. The partial thumbprint on the ticket matched Serrano. That was a eureka moment. There was finally enough for an indictment.
2: That was the big break in the entire case. With that, the state attorney's office took it to a grand jury, and in uh, early 2001, the grand jury issued its sealed indictment against uh, Nelson Serrano for all four of the murders. But that was was the moment when things
1: changed. That indictment remained sealed. Serrano was 2,000 miles away. After he had seen that episode of America's Most Wanted, and after he had learned the nephew who reserved the rental car for him was cooperating with authorities, Serrano had fled the United States. To make matters worse, prosecutors wanted to seek the death penalty against him. Ecuador did not have an extradition treaty with the U.S., and even if it did, it wouldn't extradite one of its own to be killed. Ray tried everything he could to get to Ecuador so he could pester authorities there to get Serrano back to the U.S. There was even talk about taking the death penalty off the table. Ray was stuck, and his bosses knew it. They assigned him a case in Miami, in spite of his objections. While he was eating breakfast at a hotel lounge in Miami, he noticed a placard that read, International Military Intelligence Meeting. Ray was seated with some other FDLE agents and he blurted out, ''I wonder if anyone from Ecuador is in there?'' They told him what his bosses had told him. ''Let it go, Ray.'' But that fell on deaf ears. He sprung up and boldly and bravely walked into the meeting. He got a lot of stares, even angry ones, and he was told he had walked into a closed meeting. Undaunted, Ray asked whether anyone was from Ecuador. Someone was a colonel in the Ecuadorian army who lived in Quito. Ray spoke to the Ecuadorian colonel in private, where he gave him the abridged version of his PowerPoint presentation on Serrano. The colonel was flabbergasted at the brutality of the crime, and he promised Ray he would help him.
0: He said, listen, he goes, I'm going to call the State Department. You call up there, you get all your stuff ready. you send it up there, and then you contact agents with the DEA and the one with the INS that's in Quito. And he says, I'll, I'll be back there in a few weeks and they'll get the ball rolling. You know, we'll, we'll get you some help on this thing. So it was just you know, a stroke of luck that he happened to be there and he kind of breathes the path for me.
1: So Ray got lucky again and he was on a roll. Then came the bombshell he really needed. Serrano as it turned out, was not an Ecuadorian citizen. Decades earlier, Serrano had obtained citizenship in the U.S., and Ecuadorian law at the time made dual citizenship illegal. So any citizen who sought and obtained citizenship in another country, in turn, lost his or her Ecuadorian citizenship. Serrano apparently realized that, and he was petitioning the Ecuadorian government in September 2002 to regain his citizenship. Ray told me Serrano was weeks away from succeeding when the FDLE flew him, an interpreter, and someone from the state attorney's office to Quito in the hopes of nabbing Serrano. Here's another odd fact that came to light during the investigation. Serrano obtained his U.S. citizenship in 1971 on a very familiar date, December 3rd. Apprehending Serrano in Ecuador's capital city was no slam dunk. Extradition was refused. The FBI had no presence in Quito. Its closest office was in Bogota, Colombia. That meant Ray had to work with the DEA, which had its own criminal caseload to handle. Ray stayed in Quito for 11 days. The guy from the state attorney's office wound up leaving after he felt a deportation seemed impossible. The DEA needed its workspace, so Ray and his interpreter were left to work part-time at the U.S. Embassy and the rest of the time at a British pub. But Ray had an ally, a retired Ecuadorian police major who had founded the country's first canine unit. Finally, Serrano, was spotted 10 days after Ray landed in Quito. Serrano was out to dinner with his wife and another couple. Knowing he was wanted by U.S. authorities and even though he was living on a different continent and very nearly in a different hemisphere, Serrano was still very careful. He wore a hat and a scarf to conceal his identity. He wasn't careful enough. Ecuadorian police swooped in and arrested Serrano who was stunned as was his wife. After Serrano fully grasped what was going on, he offered a $5,000 bribe to one of the police officers who was guarding him. After that, the retired Major himself stood guard of Serrano, just in case. Ray had stayed away when all of this went down. He didn't want Serrano to see him coming and turn around and run. He had come too far to chance that. But Serrano wasn't done trying to elude capture. He waited to make his last attempt while he was being escorted onto the plane where Ray was sitting and waiting for him.
0: So I'm sitting in the seat uh, waiting for Nelson Serrano uh, for them to bring him up. So I see this uh, uh, canine truck pull up and there comes you know, Nelson Serrano and he's handcuffed and he's got two or three who cops on each side. And they're walking up, you know, a tarmac up the uh, stair, the steps that's attached to the plane. And I lose sight of him, you know, whenever he gets to about the wing level. And then I see the flight attendant, and she's goes, like, oh my God, he's, you know, he's fallen. And I look around and I see a, a scuffle or something going on. And uh, so before I could get out of the seat, get up there, they had brought him and, you know, put him on the, on the plane.
1: Serrano had banged his head, which caused a lump to form. So Ray, who had first interviewed Serrano nearly five years earlier, soon after the killings, and was convinced then that he had come face-to-face with a remorseless mass murderer, grabbed a bag of ice and lightly pressed it against Serrano's forehead after the suspect was placed in his seat.
0: Well, they take off, and I think the plane's circling around, and uh, by the time Nelson comes to, and he's... Uh, I've got the bag on his head, and he goes, uh, Oh, thank you. He says, uh, "He said, how much did you pay them to, to kidnap me? And I said, we didn't pay him anything. And I said, you're not kidnapped, you're being deported. And uh, he said, well, thanks for you know, putting the ice on my head. He goes, you're nothing like that cop from Florida. I said, what cop is that? He goes, I, I, he's got a short name, it's A or Ray or something. I said, Tommy Ray? He goes, yeah, Tommy Ray. You're nothing like him. I said... I said, Nelson, I am Tommy Ray. And he looks at me and goes, your hair's all gray. What happened? You know. I, I said, you did this to me.
1: Serrano remained in jail until jury selection for his trial, which commenced in 2005. But a mistrial was declared because the judge had a conflict. It was a late-blooming discovery. It took another year before Serrano was finally tried jury selection alone took three weeks. The rest of the trial took another five weeks. Shadal covered every day of it. She told me the part of the state's case that jurors locked in on the most was that 10-hour timeline.
2: The timeline that he laid out for himself was very, very tight. It left very little room for error. He flew into Orlando and had a car rental car waiting for him and drove down here carried out the murders and then was flying back out of tampa and had to drop off the rental car and then go catch his flight and get back to atlanta and he did not have any room for error in there at all it was a very tight timeline in the trial that's one of the things that his defense lawyers had attacked was that there was just the the timeline was unrealistic it couldn't be done and I, I interviewed some of the jurors after this, the trial concluded in 2006, and they said that one of the first things they did when they went back into the jury room is they looked at that timeline, and they talked about that more than any other element of the trial, is they talked about that timeline, and in their minds, and based on their own experiences and what the, the evidence showed, that timeline was absolutely doable in their estimation, and they based a large percentage of their verdict on the believability of that timeline.
1: Much of the evidence had a lasting impact on jurors, including the crime scene photos and the testimony for the victims. While Phil Dasso was on the stand, the jurors heard the 911 call in full.
2: The, the 911 call was just bone chilling. it was it was horrific you could feel the emotion and feel their anguish just to hear nicoletta wailing in the background you could hear her her pain you could hear it all the way down to the depths of her being and when they played this during the trial they had phil dosto on the stand and the emotion on his face he was you could tell he was trying very hard to control it but you also couldn't couldn't help but see that he was reliving this in his in his mind as he was listening to this tape and it it was every bit of emotion that you could pack into a very brief 911 call
1: the state remained committed to seeking the death penalty. There was a long list of aggravating factors that prosecutors thought were impossible to overlook. The execution style of the slayings was particularly evil.
2: They had to know, the ones who were killed subsequently had to know what was coming. They had to see the earlier, the first ones killed and know that know what was happening. And when Diane came in, she walked in to pick up her brother and her husband to take them home and just happened to stumble into a situation at the wrong time the scene itself was just very gory it was very it was it was very bloody they were shot in the head and it left little doubt that there was anger involved because of the way it happened
1: The lead prosecutor in 2006 was John Aguero, who retired from the state attorney's office. Earlier this year, he was preparing to come out of retirement to prosecute Serrano again. Only he died suddenly after contracting an infection while visiting his daughter in Morocco. Chattelkadi, who had the highest praise for Ray's work on the case, said Aguero's trial performance was equally exceptional.
2: The job he did in that trial was nothing short of phenomenal because he had a totally circumstantial case. They only had Serrano as far as Orlando. That was it. They didn't have him in Barco. They had to put together a circumstantial case that would convince a jury that this man pulled the trigger. John Aguero did such a masterful job at presenting this case to the jury. And when he got up to do his closing argument, he laid out a long series of circumstances, of situations, of events that took place and presented it to them that if you believe that Nelson Serrano didn't do this, then you have to believe that this is just a coincidence and that this is just a coincidence and this and this and this and this. And by the time he got to the bottom of the list, if anybody would be hard pressed to think that he that Serrano didn't have some involvement in it. But he did a just an expertly done presentation before the jury. And I think that I think Tommy got him all the way to the 10-yard line, if you will, but John was the one who carried it across the goal line.
1: In October 2016, Serrano was convicted, and jurors voted 9-3 to recommend the death penalty. The judge in the case followed that recommendation the following June. Serrano's four death sentences were thrown out courtesy of a 4-3 decision by the Florida Supreme Court in May. In short, the court based its decision on a 2016 ruling that declared the death penalty unconstitutional, which prompted the Florida legislature to revise it. Since then, murder defendants may only be sent to death row if jurors are unanimous in their death recommendation. That ruling was applied retroactively to most death penalty rulings dating back to June 2002. A new sentencing hearing has not been set yet for Serrano, but it is expected to be scheduled for 2018. Serrano's conviction was not overturned, so either way, he's spending the rest of his life in prison. But in order for a new panel of jurors to give a recommendation for life or death, all of the trial evidence must be heard by them, so it will be another long, emotional trial for all involved. Chattelcotti told me the victims' families were devastated after hearing the news in May of the overturned death sentence. It means some will have to take the stand again. It means they will have to hear that 911 call again inside a courtroom. All that carnage will have to be described again. And those crime scene photos will have to be seen again. And Aguaro won't be there. The Dasso's and the Petissos have not wavered on what kind of sentence they feel Serrano deserves. They want him to sit alone in a cell with a death sentence looming over him. Anything short of that would add insult to 20 years worth of acute emotional pain.
2: I think they would be upset about that. They look at what they have lost and they... Feel that Serrano is being more severely punished on death row than he would be if he was in general population with a life sentence. And they they want to know that his life is difficult.
1: In Ecuador, Serrano is portrayed as a victim of a cruel US justice system. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week as I discuss the unsolved murders of four women who were slain from December 2005 to December 2007. Authorities have said their deaths are likely the work of a serial killer. My guests for that segment will include Daytona cold case investigator Larry Kelly and former Daytona Beach News Journal crime reporter Lita Longa. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sutton Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Just going to run this
0: dog to see if we can find any type of... uh